Welcome to Recovery Radio by Landmark Recovery with your host, Zach Crouch. In this program, we'll discuss the root causes and treatments of alcohol and substance addiction, speak with experts in related fields, and help navigate the road to recovery. Now, here's the host of Recovery Radio, Zach Crouch. Hello and happy Friday. I'm Zach Crouch, host of the Recovery Radio podcast, your internet radio destination for addiction and recovery resources that save lives and empower families. Do you know someone addicted to drugs or alcohol? Perhaps you've been struggling personally and are looking for resources and expert guidance. Recovery Radio is here to help. We are dedicated to providing you with the necessary tools to inspire a friend, a neighbor, colleague, or loved one to take that first step on their road to recovery. Joining us today is Dr. Chris Schrote. Chris completed his undergraduate degree at the University of Kentucky, receiving a bachelor's in honors in philosophy in 1984. He received his medical degree from the University of Louisville and completed his psychiatric residency training at the University of Massachusetts. Dr. Schrode is a trained clinician in cognitive therapy, meditation, psychodynamic psychotherapy, and hypnosis, as well as EMDR. Dr. Schrote utilizes all these practices within his clinical practice. He was a staff psychiatrist as well as a medical director for many years. He is also a faculty member at the Earth and Passion Spirit Center here in Louisville, Kentucky, where he teaches mindfulness meditation classes. Welcome to the show, Dr. Schrote. We are incredibly gracious to have you on the on on the show with us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Zach. So, you know the the title of the show today is Meditation Practices and Its Benefits for the Addicted Person. So, I've just got to ask, you know, with with meditation in general, I've you know uh, always kind of thought it was it was not very you know, much a part of healthcare in, in, in some senses. I was more Eastern mm-hmm. philosophy and, you know, but now I've, you know, I've read Time Magazine articles. I've, I've read New York Times articles. I've read lots of different literature. And just going back through the years, how, how did meditation itself get integrated into, integrated first, I should say, into healthcare? So, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been somewhat of a long journey. Really, things started probably back in the 1970s. I think, you know, part yeah. of the uh, kind of hippie generation, there was an increased interest in meditation uh, in the West, looking at, uh, you know, some Asi- uh, Asian religious traditions. And in the 70s, uh, there were actually two people who started to do research on one of the, you know, first forms of meditation that became more common uh, in the United States, uh, which was transcendental meditation. There was a, a Dr. Herbert Benson and then someone named Robert Keith Wallace who did um, research on the benefits of transcendental meditation, and they were able to show with really pretty good studies that this form of meditation, which uh, involves uh, uh, concentrating on particular sounds um, mm-hmm. could uh, invoke uh, significant changes in the body and brain. And uh, once this started to take hold, there started to become interest in other forms of meditation. Probably the next evolution occurred uh, several years later, and it's actually 
uh, one of the places I trained, which was the University of Massachusetts, and a name that's okay. somewhat familiar to, I think, a lot of people, uh, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who uh, had been trained in uh, the mindfulness traditions, which come out of uh, uh, Buddhist meditation practice in Southeast Asia. He started uh, the Stress Reduction Clinic at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, where it was really the first time that mindfulness meditation was integrated in a, in a formal way in an actual uh, medical center setting. And uh, since that time, this, you know, the evolution is, you know, has, has occurred, and now you can find mindfulness uh, teachers and practitioners throughout healthcare through the entire United States. In fact, you know, here in Louisville, uh, just in the last few years, the medical school has actually started to have classes where they train both the students and the residents in uh, uh, mindfulness training. And, you know, wow. from when I was at the medical school, uh, you know, we would talk a little bit about meditation, and I actually ran a meditation group uh, for a little while when I was a medical student, but... Uh, back then, it was still kind of looked on as something odd and strange, but, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been, you know, literally thousands of research articles that, uh, looking at uh, meditation and how it affects the brain and various uh, health problems, not just in addiction and psychiatry. Wow. Thank you for that. Uh yeah, I, you know, I, as, as you're talking, I've, I've just got so many different questions now with uh, everything that you brought up. And just in general, can you can you kind of tell the folks what, you know, I mean, it seems like an odd question. I mean, it seems like it's very popular now, but wh- what is what is meditation? And, and what distinguishes the different types? Yes, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's somewhat of a complicated question. You know, everybody talks about meditation, but, you know, often people are not very clear on what it is. I mean, you know, generally, uh, you know, meditation can be kind of considered, uh, you know, different kind of mental, you know, psychological exercises that allow a person to reach some increased level of, you know, psychological health and or kind of spiritual uh, insight. You know, traditionally, these practices, you know, they were part of religious traditions and spiritual traditions that mm-hmm. really were to allow a person to, you know, gain, you know, a tremendous amount of, you know, understanding of themselves and the world in, in, a, in a deeply spiritual way. It's really been since they're kind of, you know, moved to uh, the West that we've started to look at kind of the science behind them. You know, that being said, you know, even if you go back and look at, you know, you know, ancient traditions in Asia, they would talk mm-hmm. about certain psychological benefits from doing, uh, you know, some of these practices. So, uh, you know, though they did not have the science to, to, to kind of back them up, they knew that there were, you know, not just spiritual benefits, but uh, some physical and psychological benefits from, from these practices. So, you know, what came up as you, as you answer that, you know, sort of first question that I asked you about, you know, why I got integrated into the healthcare field. I, you know, I was thinking more about uh, even even today with uh, a guy like, uh, you know, who Dan Harris is. Uh, I'm not familiar. Who can you tell me something about him? Yeah, yeah. So Dan actually, 
he be, he became pretty popular now. He's a big advocate for mindfulness meditation. And Dan's story mm-hmm. is he was he was a news anchor and in on air uh-huh. probably a number of years ago in the middle of in the middle of a bit he actually had uh, what was it he ended up having a panic attack on air and uh, mm-hmm. you know he talks about that pretty openly now and he said that you know meditation has been not the cure but in a lot of ways the the cure to what has helped him sort of uh, deal with his own anxiety and in he wrote a book called 10 percent happier and it's it's all based mm-hmm. a lot of it's based around this practice so you know my question is you know in in terms of people practicing meditation now in this country in the united states why now why is it becoming so popular now well i think um you know the popularity, and, and and again, you know, even even twenty years ago, um, I think that uh, meditation was still kind of seen as as kind of uh, you know foreign, or there really wasn't uh, you know acceptance of it in the medical community. I think now what has happened is you know initially because of some of that you know basic research that was done, you know, you know twenty five thirty years ago. Uh, there is now just this kind of groundswell of looking at how these practices can actually alter psychology and biology. And, you know, once kind of the science starts to grow behind something and, and, and it looks pretty positive, then the medical community kind of opens up to it. And, and you know, it's understandable. I mean, I think that, you know, as, as you know, physicians, as healers, as, you know, scientists, we want to, you know, test our hypotheses and make sure that these things actually have some validity. And, you know, there are very clear benefits that we're seeing from, you know, using, you know, meditation techniques, both mm-hmm. in, uh, uh, you know, addiction recovery and in, you know, psychology. It's interesting, yeah. when I was actually at uh, the University of Massachusetts uh, in, in, in training, and I, and I actually was fortunate enough to be an intern under John Kabat-Zinn. Um, while we were there, one day um, two psychologists uh, visited, and they were actually the psychologists who were starting to develop what's called mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and they were actually came to kind of do some interviews with John Kabat-Zinn. And that form of psychotherapy now is considered one of the, you know, main forms of psychotherapy that is taught in you know, schools of psychology and departments of psychiatry in the United States. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's somewhat of a hybrid of using these meditation, you know, practices and some of the psychology behind meditation with, you know, the, the, you know, the basics of, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, which really mm-hmm. has been pretty much the dominant form of therapy, uh, you know, for years and years. Got it. You know, with... Uh you know, we're all, I would say most of us today, uh, we, we have lots of responsibilities if we're, you know, professionals or even if we're not professionals, we're all, you know, trying to make a living doing this, um, you know, uh, just, just make it day to day. A lot of us are, what are, what are some of the barriers you think to practicing meditation? Is it, is it time? Is that, mm-hmm. is that a big part of it? Yes, you know, I think that, um, you know, one of the difficulties, and this is, you know, working with, uh, you know, 
patients especially is that um, you do have to, I mean, it, it's a training. You know, learning mm-hmm. meditation is a training, and I describe it to my patients as, you know, it's, it's as if, if you were going to work out. I mean, you, you know, you have to go and go to the gym on a regular basis, and the more you do, the easier it gets. The more you do, you know, the greater the benefit. And, um, uh, you know, the the thing about meditation is that it requires one to kind of slow down and kind of step out of their life. And, you know, our culture is, you know, very much one of kind of doing more, doing more, doing more. And, uh, you know, to kind of, you know, develop a meditation practice, it requires one to really set, you know, time aside to you know, be quiet and do these, you know, practices. It's one of the reasons that, you know, doing these practices in a group setting can be quite helpful. And it's Mm -hmm. one of the things that I think in recovery, you know, recovery models uh, kind of can help facilitate this because, you know, with, uh, you know, AA and refuge recovery, uh, I think there it's, it's, you know, this is a group kind of, you know, collaboration as people are trying to, you know, deal with their, you know, addiction. So it's somewhat amenable to people being able to practice together because, again, it's, it's some, sometimes these meditation practices, especially the mindfulness practices, um, can sometimes be difficult at times, and it's helpful to have a, a group. So it's really the, the fact that our lives are so busy uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, you know, we have to take the time out, you know, to do it. It's... it's um, uh, you, you know, it, it is true the more intensive one practices, one will see, you know, greater benefit. That being the case, you know, in some of the research, even, you know, what kind of, you know, traditionally would be considered low to moderate levels of meditation practice, you know, even, you know, 15, 20 minutes a day uh, mm-hmm. can show some clear benefits for, for people. So you've been doing meditation most of your life at this point, my guess, right? Yeah. And yeah. how long do you practice each day, or is it each day that you practice? And yeah, I mean, I mean, I practice, yeah. you know, pr- pretty much, you know, at minimum, you know, a half hour a day of formal practice. Part of part of the benefit of learning mindfulness, and this is this is something I emphasize with. Um, my patients. Again, you know, it's, it's sometimes hard to have a daily meditation practice because we're busy. You know, I usually, you know ideally people would, would meditate, you know, hours a day, but that's not realistic with our lives. But if, if you have a very strong foundation, you know, being able to have a regular meditation practice where at minimum a half an hour a day, uh, which I think there's clear benefit from doing that, uh, you know, can occur. But but one of the things I do emphasize is with mindfulness meditation, uh, at a certain point, you can train yourself to actually meditate while you're engaged in activity. And this is something that's not really, you know, you know, always kind of understood. But, you know, meditation and, you know, training in mindfulness is really about having a particular attitude towards your experience moment to moment. And that can actually include while we're doing things, you know, in, in, in these traditions, it's, it's often called everyday mindfulness. Now, it takes a certain amount of probably, you know, basic meditation where you're doing it in quiet and, 
you know, with your eyes closed to get to the point where you can do that with some degree of proficiency. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the things, you know, if you actually tallied up how much I would say that I'm, you know, my mind is in a meditative experience, that would probably be hours a day because I actually, and, and you can, you know, have training where you are actually mindful throughout the day. And that can actually be very, very useful. So talk about that for a second. The basic, you know, what the basic biological and psychological benefits of, of meditation, what, what are they? I mean, one of the things that we really have found out, you know, since there's been this, you know, kind of emphasis on research over the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years is that um, meditation does change the brain in some pretty, you know, fundamental ways. What becomes a little confusing with the research is that some of these meditation techniques actually involve probably several techniques. It's like when we teach mindfulness meditation to people, um, the beginning instructions in mindfulness meditation uh, really are, are very much about developing concentration in the mind and calm in the mind. And there are other, like, you know, doing transcendental meditation or mantra meditation. Uh, those practices are designed, you know, for one particular purpose. And then mindfulness meditation is actually somewhat of a different purpose. But to do mindfulness meditation, you have to cultivate calm and concentration. So when they do the research, it actually is is a little bit muddied because when somebody, like when I read a a study on mindfulness meditation, the question Mm -hmm. that's always in my mind is, you know, how much of this mindfulness practice was was more the person was doing a concentration type of practice with with a little bit of mindfulness or is it you know, more mindfulness, and they weren't actually doing as much concentration practice. And, you know, it's very difficult to parse that out in in the literature. However, there are some things, you know, I think some global things we can glean from what, you know, the research we have so far. Um, You know, in kind of a general way, what we know from meditation, regardless of the form, is that, you know, a, a regular meditation practice will alter the frontal part of the brain. And this is the part of the brain, you know, that, that is, is often associated with uh, attention, concentration, and very importantly, the ability to kind of modulate emotion and impulses. And as you can see, mm-hmm. this is where it would relate a lot to addiction, addiction. and right. uh, psych- psychological issues. Because... Um, uh, you know, part of the problem when people have addiction uh, is that, you know, they get stronger just to use. And we know from addiction research that people who, you know, have had addiction problems, often they're, they have, you know, lower frontal lobe function, uh, you know, often due to the mm-hmm. addiction, but even it might have been a cause of the addiction. And what... What doing meditation practice allows is, this, is the frontal part of the brain, this ability to concentrate, this ability to modulate emotion, to get more active, and therefore the, the brain, the mind can modulate, you know, urges and impulses better. In addition, meditation uh, decreases activity in other parts of the brain. Most importantly, uh, the, uh, you know, 
you know, we call it the, you know, the limbic system. You know, there's mm-hmm. a part of the limbic system also, you know, called the amygdala. And this is where a lot of the, you know, emotion urges intensity right. that can kind of arise in someone if they're having, you know, anxiety or negative mind states or urges to use. And what we've seen from doing meditation research and even, you know, having people, you know, do either, you know, uh, functional MRI scanning or spec scanning is those, those areas of the brain become less active. So we're both increasing kind of a top-down modulation from, the, from this frontal upper part of the brain, and then we're decreasing this, you know, these, you know, powerful urges, negative impulses, negative mind states from, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this limbic part of the brain, this lower part of the brain. And, you know, having that just basic understanding really then helps one kind of understand how, you know, meditation can help these problems. That's good stuff. Would you say that anyone can benefit from meditation or are there specific people who have uh, a greater or lesser sort of need for, for, for meditative practices? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think that, um, and, and, and this is part of the issue with kind of training people to work with other, you know, you know, training people to um, be able to facilitate you know, meditation, whether it's, you know, if they're a psychologist or they're running a, you know, a group for people with addiction. Um, you know, there, there are some, uh, you know, some things you have to be kind of, you know, aware of when you're teaching medica- meditation. And, you know, this goes back to the dichotomy uh, I brought up just a moment ago. I, I think it's very useful when I teach meditation, I emphasize this. It's very useful to kind of think of, you know, that, that there are really two major kinds of meditation practices. There are what I tend to call, you know, concentration practices. They go by other names as well. But these are the practices that really emphasize developing calm and concentration in the brain. And then there are, you know, what we would call insight practices, uh, which, which includes kind of, uh, uh, you know, the mindfulness practices developed. And these practices are very beneficial. They do lead to calm, but they, they, they also, uh, these latter practices allow insight and a deeper understanding of the process of how the mind works and how we relate to experience. Sure. The thing is, is that the, the former practices, the calm practices, they pretty much, um, I think, are useful for almost everyone. Um, because you're really helping the person just cultivate kind of calm in the mind. They, they, they really help modulate and decrease that kind of limbic hyperactivity that you see, you know, in mm-hmm. addiction and other psychological problems. The, the, the difficulty is sometimes initially when you teach people just mindfulness meditation, because mindfulness is really, it's cultivating the ability of a person to kind of be in the present moment and be with their experience, whatever the thoughts, feelings, emotions, body sensations are, without being reactive. It's training okay. the mind to not, again, kind of grab hold and react to the contents of mind, which, as you can see, would be really useful for addiction. But sure. um, the, the difficulty with doing those practices is, you know, the person is opening up more to kind of their inner experience. And if, you know, they don't have some ability to kind of be calm and ground, if you open up Mm -hmm. to 
what's arising in your mind, which could include, and this is not uncommon in, you know, you know, the population of people with, with addictions, there can be a lot of trauma, there can be a lot of past yep. stress, and, and that actually can then lead to a certain, you know, degree of feeling overwhelmed. When I was at UMass, um, one of which the Which is why a, a lot of people probably me, start the practice and then just quit. They quit, or they can actually be overwhelmed. I mean, when I again okay. when I was at UMass, good point. Uh, there was a, there's a large meditation center in Massachusetts called the Insight Meditation Society, and um, some of the psychiatrists at the University of Massachusetts were consultants to them because on on retreats and retreats are where people do meditation for you know pretty much you know most of the day they'll be in in meditation sometimes you know, difficult material would arise in their mind and they would be overwhelmed because they were not able to modulate opening up to those emotions, which, you know, makes it kind of tricky then when we introduce meditation into, you know, like recovery, because again, people, you know, can have a, you know, very often have had a lot of trauma when, uh, you know, and some of that even fuels their addiction. So there has to be, a, you know, some some awareness of what kind of meditation you're teaching a person and when they should do it. I mean, it's not uncommon where I'll tell somebody because they're going through a certain thing to shift what kind of meditation they do and to do a different kind of meditation than maybe okay. they're doing. And um, so that's that's an important differentiation. And is that something that you teach the folks at the uh, Earth and Passion Spirit Center here in Louisville to do? Yeah, it's so. Yeah, it's so. Yeah, and it's actually it's called the the, the Passionist Earth and Spirit Center. I'm sorry. Okay. And um, yeah, and 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 we um, so yes, I mean, we, you know, the there are there are classes there that teach, um, you know, meditation, uh, uh, and there's you know different levels of kind of you know teaching that uh, uh, people can get uh, there. Um, one of the things that, that I think is really kind of important, you know, it, I think meditation also, you know, often still, it, it, there's this, con- there's this, you know, thought that it's, you know, kind of weird or it's, you know, it has to be related to, you know, Buddhist meditation, you know, Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever. And really these, you know, I think the evolution of what's happening here is we're starting to see that these are really psychological techniques and they don't have to be really taught necessarily and you don't necessarily have you know, have to have that kind of religious context. In fact, at the Earth and Spirit Center, you know, the primary teacher there is actually a Catholic priest, and he, you know, okay. often teaches that you know teaches you know basically mindfulness meditation and these kinds of concentration practices. But it's you know often done in a in a Christian context. So, and and, and I think that's very useful because it, it allows you know a lot of people to go, hey, this is not you know, you know, would not be against kind of my, you know, my beliefs. Um, sure. In addition, what we're actually working on at the Earth and Spirit Center right now is we are developing um, a, a program. It's going to be a year-long training program, and it's, it's going to be taught by, um, you know, basically, you know, several of the teachers there, including myself, and we're, we're going to be training, you know, helping people deepen their meditation practice, give them a really strong, you know, background and understanding, you know, all these aspects of meditation, uh, and then helping them facilitate uh, in, you know, whatever 
field they work and be able to facilitate, uh, you know, working with people and being able to do, you know, meditation uh, mm-hmm. in, in whatever, you know, field they work in. You know, one of the things that we would, that we wanted to make sure is that people, you know, understand, because this is going to be, I think, an exceptionally good program for people who are interested in, you know, integrating, you know, meditation into, like, you know, if you're a uh, substance abuse counselor or if you're a yoga teacher or if you're a, uh, yeah. you know, high school teacher or you work at a, you know, work in a bank where you can actually, you know, you know, work, you know, with people and kind of facilitate their practice and be able to answer some basic questions. It's not really teacher training, and this is, again, another issue that's becoming kind of, I think, a national issue with this kind of explosion of interest in meditation. You know, you know, teacher training, um, you know, to, to, to really kind of be in the traditions that these come from, to really be a meditation teacher requires years and years and years of kind of training, study, and practice. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, that's one of the things we're emphasizing in this program is, you know, when people finish this, they're not going to be able to call themselves a meditation teacher and run workshops and things. But that that level of expertise, you know, would require, you know, much more intensive meditation and understanding and reading and training from people who have a, you know, a, uh, you know a, an amazingly great depth of knowledge. But, you know, that being said, this program, I think, is going to really be an asset to kind of bring mindfulness into all sorts of different uh, 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 venues so people can have greater exposure and really get, I think, some good understanding of it. And you said it's a year long. How uh, how often would people uh, uh, be meeting and uh, what would be the cost for something like this? Yeah, so so we're actually working out the details of that right now. Okay. I think you know the the best place to get all the information so, yeah, about website. it, and we do have a we do have a brochure, is to go to the you know the Passionist uh, Earth and Spirit Center website in Louisville, and um, uh, you know we have all the information about the program that we have at this point, and it, it gives the dates and times. It's going to be set up where there's going to be you know, uh, monthly kind of weekend seminars go over a couple days. And there there actually be, you know, a long meditation, you know, a, uh, you know, three-day meditation retreat where there's more intensive meditation practice. And you know, along the way, people will be trained and, you know, really understanding that, you know, the, uh, you know, the psychology, you know, the biology, the, you know, the the kind of, framework that you need to kind of understand to teach meditation because, you know, meditation, you know, in, in, in training and mindfulness, is, it's, it's really part of, and this is where, you know, I think mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and mindfulness-based stress reduction came from. It's, it's really, you know, a, a, uh, you know, not just about, just, you know, sitting on a cushion and learning to yeah. meditate. It's about how to integrate it into your daily life, which requires a, a, a deeper understanding of the, of the practices. So, you know, th- I appreciate everything. This is this is this has been fantastic so far. I, I'm, I am curious, though, about yourself, just a little bit more information about kind of your background. You mentioned uh, or I mentioned, I'm sorry, in the beginning that you received uh, a bachelor's in philosophy is uh, is your undergraduate uh, work. And what, what made you decide to pursue a future in medicine after, you know, receiving a, a bachelor's in philosophy? 
Yeah, well, actually, you know, I, you know, I come, I actually come from a a, a pretty uh, uh, pretty big group of doctors. So I am, uh, I, I have okay. five siblings, uh, four of whom are physicians as well, and then my father oh, wow. is a physician. So in my, in my immediate family, there are six MDs, okay. and. Yeah. Um, so I was always somewhat interested in medicine, but, uh, you know, I became actually interested in meditation when I was quite young. I, I actually learned transcendental meditation when I was 15. And okay. uh, then I started to do uh, uh, mindfulness meditation when I was uh, at University of Kentucky. Uh, I was 18 years old and then, um, you know, did a lot of, uh, you know, meditation retreats, intensive meditation retreats when I was in my... Uh, uh, you know, early twenties, um, uh, actually took, took some time off after medical school where I did a lot of meditation retreats and then went back into the, did my psychiatry residency. And, and one of the reasons I went to UMass was because, and again, at that time, meditation was still considered kind of, you know, uh, not really part of, yeah, it was kind of weird and it was not really considered part of, you know, uh, medicine, except that, at UMass, where John Kevinson had really started the stress reduction clinic. And, um, you know, my, my view is probably in 50 years, you know, he'll be looked on as kind of probably, you know, a, a very, very important kind of figure in the history of medicine for kind of getting that going. Got it. Hey, hey, you know, in your practice, do you have do you have folks that come to you who believe that meditation is really not an effective form uh, of treatment? And and how do you respond to those people who are not open to it? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's um, um, you know, I I, uh, I don't necessarily even you know uh, introduce meditation to everybody who I, I I treat. You know, I think you know in my bio you kind of saw that I, I have training in a lot of different kind of you know, psychotherapy modalities. I mean, you know, probably mm-hmm. the majority of people I see would benefit from meditation. Um, and and I, I've, I've introduced meditation to, you know, probably the majority of people who, you know, I see. Um, but, sure. uh, you know, some people, it, it can be difficult. And um, uh, what, what's interesting, though, is that you can patient... You know, it's not just, like I said, about sitting on a cushion. Like, sometimes I will just teach people walking meditation, which is a meditation you actually do while you're just going for a walk. Right. And it can be very calming. Um, so, um, uh, and there are some non-meditation techniques that, that can induce this, you know, a deep sense of relaxation that you can get some physiological changes and benefits. Uh, yeah. They really are not considered traditional meditation techniques that sometimes I'll use. So if, if you've ever listened to any of the Recovery Radio podcasts, usually I'm a lot more interactive, but I got to tell you, I don't know if this is just because you are a master, uh, uh, you know, hypnosis uh, guy, or if you've just done <laughs> meditation for so long that I, I've felt no more relaxed today, uh, I felt more <laughs> relaxed today, rather, than, than the entire day, and uh, uh-huh. I don't know, you know, with with your background in hypnosis, uh, a serious question here, how, how do you integrate that practice, the hypnosis practice, into what you do with your patients? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so hypnosis is, 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 is somewhat of a different thing. I mean, hypnosis, 
you know, involves kind of tapping into, you know, some unconscious tendencies in people, and, and it's really based on, you know, the ability of, or, or the, you know, the ability of um, a person to be, you know, to, you know, to be suggested to. Mm-hmm. And suggestibility and hypnotizability is a trait that people have. You know, there, there's, there's somewhat of a, of a range that exists where, you know, a, a person can increase their hypnotizability, but there are certain people in the population who cannot be hypnotized. Mm-hmm. Um, who are those people? Part of the population who's incredibly hypnotizable, and then there's a group, group, a group in the middle. And, um, you, know, you can't really do hypnosis with the first group, but with the other two, you can, you know, you can use hypnosis uh, and, you know, be able to induce a lot of kind of, you know, behavioral changes. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I use probably, you know, I, I still do hypnosis, probably some hypnosis every week, mm-hmm. but um, probably the majority of the, the type of psychotherapy I do in my practice would involve, you know, uh, some cognitive behavior therapy, uh, meditation training, and then I do a fair amount of of uh, EMDR, which is a, yeah. a a type of therapy that actually allows a person to um, kind of rework traumatic memory. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a you know it, it desensitizes and reworks memory. It has a lot of overlap actually with mindfulness meditation. And because they're, they're both ways to um, kind of be able to, you know, the mind is being trained to be able to sit with very, you know, you know often difficult mind-body states without reacting. And in doing so, what that does, whether it's from, from you know, doing meditation or doing um, uh, EMDR, it really allows the mind to see that the contents of consciousness moment to moment, whether it's a thought, a feeling, a memory, thinking about the future, that these contents of mind are really not so solid. They're not so much permanent in the mind and that we don't have to over-identify with them. And in fact, the, the non-over-identification with what goes on in the mind and the, and, and the not... Um, you know, seeing these contents of, of mind, you know, or, or body as self is what really creates a lot of the, the positive benefit. It, it allows the mind to kind of settle and relax. You know, it, mm. it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what's important, what's important about that, that that's, that's the key to, you know, all the recovery programs. I mean, you know, when, when I talk right. to people about going to AA or even if they go to refuge recovery, you know, the common, you know, what, you know, really, one of the key concepts of those, and it's not really explicitly talked about in AA, is really about not getting too caught up in oneself. You know, it's you know, it goes back to the whole idea of kind of you know, you, you got to get out of the way. It's kind of you know, you have to surrender and not let your own ego, sure, you know, get in the way because that ends up being the problem. I mean, if you look at relapse, you know, so much of it is the person gets caught up in their own thinking and they they think they know the right way to go. And, you know, the beauty of, you know, the 12-step program is that it allows people to kind of, you know, try to let go of that ego. And that kind of ends up, I think, you know, leading to great benefits. 
Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point about the ego and, you know, you're trained in psychodynamic psychotherapy. Can you briefly kind of tell our audience, uh, describe a little bit more for them what that is? Yeah, so psychodynamic psychotherapy is, you know, a form of psychotherapy. And, you know, it, it tends to be a little bit longer term, but, uh, you know, it's really based on the fact that, you know, we tend to bring into our, our relationships, uh, you know, the patterns and dynamics that we, you know, were formed when we were, you know, younger, uh, when we were, you know, children, mm-hmm. adolescents. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that form of therapy, what, you know, what happens is the person, and, and, and the therapist actually has to kind of be trained and kind of know how to react. I, I actually don't do as much, you know, psychodynamic psychotherapy as I, I used to. And I, I um, um, you know, though I still understand the principles, you know, well and think about them when I'm seeing people, but mm-hmm, the therapy mm-hmm. itself is one where the relationship itself becomes the healing mechanism because what will actually happen in psychodynamic yeah. psychotherapy is the, the, you know, the client, the patient brings into the relationship with the, the therapist the, the thoughts, the emotions that they have had towards other people in their past. Mm-hmm, know, whether mm-hmm. it's their parents or other people, and that will then that will actually manifest in the relationship, and in the context of a relationship with a therapist through interpretation and understanding, the patient can actually heal, you know the you know the the psychological difficulties that were rooted in these relationships by working on the relationship with the therapist. It's a it's a, you know, a model that I think works you know, very well and, um, uh, you know, has great utility. Again, it's, it's interesting, you know, I've, I've been trained in a lot of different psychotherapies and they all have great utility when they're used kind of in the right way, in the right context. Got it. Yeah. And psychodynamic therapy came out of Freud's work and, you know, uh, I guess, you know, with Freud being gone now, uh, yeah. that's that's probably what made him probably uh, one of the most either crazy or most effective psychotherapists ever lived, right? Was just he used that relationship and he understood um, the value of that. Is that, would you agree? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, what I think, you know, if you look back, I mean, Freud's probably, you know, greatest insights are that, you know, there is, there, there are, you know, basically intentions and motivations that are not, that are outside of our everyday awareness. And, you know, that there's this kind of unconscious, you know, that works uh, in our lives. And, you know, it really kind of is the precursor, you know, in some ways it, it, it's, it's helped us even understand with, you know, meditation coming, you know, from Asia because it's you know the meditation techniques are another way for us to look more deeply at these unconscious processes. Um, you know, EMDR is another way to do it, and it's it's all you, you know they they all have common threads that kind of you know weave together. But uh, uh, you know the understand you know the understanding of therapy you know in Freud. I mean you know there are some people who who and I would of course I'm a psychiatrist so I would say this means. You know, probably one of the top five most important thinkers for sure in the 20th century is, 
you know, Floyd for, for his insight. Some people would say in the top two or three. Interesting. So, you know, just in, in your current practice now, what, what types of therapy are you, are you utilizing most often? Like I said, you know, I, I, I probably, you know, I do a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. I do a, a, a lot of EMDR. EMDR. Uh, you, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I work a lot with people who have PTSD, who have trauma. And it's also where I can use a lot of, uh, you know, the meditation techniques to help kind of, you know, stabilize and help people with their anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, I mean, that's, that's probably, but, but like I said, I, I still do some hypnosis and, you know, the psychodynamic understanding of things is always there in the background. What, uh, you know, there, there was a colleague of mine, gentleman, he's actually a, uh, <laughs> Believe it or not, he's a jazz musician, and mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the 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 technique is called havening. And yeah, uh, it was mm-hmm. di- it was developed by a guy named Dr. Ronald Rudin. And yeah. uh, do you, do you practice that? What is what is havening? I'm not as familiar. Maybe you are with it. Yeah. So so you know, I, I have not been trained in havening. I know some therapists who have been. I mean, havening is another form. Another methodology to basically, you know, I think, you know, desensitize uh, traumatic memory. It's another way to allow the mind to, you know, kind of adaptively see and rework distressing memory. You know, to kind of step back, if you you actually look at kind of trauma and you look at, uh, you know, when people have distressing events from their past, the most important kind of depth understanding, and this again, you know, crosses over even into the kind of the, you know, the psychology of meditation is that, you know, our memories are, are basically just, you know, current mind moments. They don't actually exist as those events anymore. Now, if you have post-traumatic stress disorder or if you have, you know, even trauma that doesn't reach and, and that affects you that does not reach the level of post-traumatic stress, when, when we experience those memories or thoughts, we'll have the emotional reaction on some level as if it's actually happening again. But it's not because it's just, you know, this, you know, memory that's occurring in the moment. But... You know, because of the intensity of the emotion, because, again, the limbic system is overactive, is mm-hmm. we, you know, it's almost like the mind's playing a trick on itself. It's as if it's happening again. And these desensitizing techniques, whether it's, you know, EMDR or Havening, and there's some other sensitizing techniques as well, um, what they allow the mind to do is to really see the reality meaning the memory more clearly. It sees sure. it adaptively. It sees it for really what it is, which is just a memory. And in fact, that's the same thing that, that happens in meditation. I mean, as we, as we get trained in mindfulness, as people, you know, are, are, you know have, have trained their minds to be able to be in the present moment without reacting, they start to experience their reality as, oh, these are just thoughts. Yes, they're thoughts that are occurring in my consciousness, but... You know, I don't necessarily have to react to these uh, in a particular way. I can see them for what they are, which is that they are 
impermanent thoughts that arise and pass away and that they may come again. And, you know, havening, you know, the research on havening, I think, is getting more and more. You know, the the question is, is havening more effective than than, um, uh, EMDR? I think, you know, we'll find that out. And I think, you know, if it is, that would be, you know, again, advancements. And who knows when it's going to be 20 or 30 years. I mean, I think that... um, you know, there's a possibility that even neuromodulation, you know, using, you know, external energy in the brain, which is, you know, becoming, you know, uh, an important uh, modality, could mm-hmm. help facilitate, you know, getting over PTSD. And then, and we don't have time for this, Zach, but, you know, there's a whole new field of, of and this is going to be happening over the next just, you know, three, four, five years. Uh, looking at uh, hallucinogens okay. used, you know, very judiciously to treat all sorts of psychological issues, including addiction. It sounds kind of, you know, almost, you know. Well, maybe that's a follow-up podcast then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, very interesting. Um. You know, in your practice, and, and you've been doing this for a long time now, um, is there a time frame? Is, is there a length at which you would say most people who have come to you to be treated for an addiction, the amount of time it takes for them to really work through these issues that are underlying, that have fueled the addiction for a long, long time, whether it's trauma, et cetera, um, that you've seen in your in your practice, or is it just it's case by case depending upon you know the the person how long it takes for them to heal, uh, utilizing the meditation practice, for instance, that you use a lot. Yeah, you sort know, of a convoluted. It, it, it does question. vary a so, lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it does vary a lot. I mean, I think that again, there's there's a lot of a lot of trauma in people who have addiction. You know, there's you know, and 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 that can really kind of you know, that sometimes needs to be dealt with to help really help with any kind of relapse prevention. You know, there's a lot of biology that's going on for a lot of people who, you know, have addiction. And, you know, I'll tell people, you know, they're, they're, you know, they could have a perfectly charmed life and have had no trauma, but still have a very severe addiction. And, you know, they will need to, you know, be super vigilant their whole lives and work, you know, work a 12-step program and work on relapse prevention and maybe even take medication to help you know, deal with urges, um, and something like EMDR might not be useful for them because, again, there's no real trauma, though sometimes EMDR can help with, you know, urges sometimes, but uh, it really varies from person to person. You know, what, what is key is that, you know, when, when, when someone, you know, I see a lot of positive change after someone has been able to maintain sobriety for a certain you know, period of time, six to 12 months, because, you know, the brain after, after, you know, someone's had addiction, you know, the brain really takes a while to fully heal just mm-hmm. from the addictive process. So, um, you know, I usually tell yeah, people, absolutely. you know, you're not going to, you're not even going to be hitting on all cylinders for a year. You know, they may, they may feel a lot of the change in the first few right. months, but, you know, for the brain to really kind of get back online fully, it can be, you know, a, a, a year or so. And then, you know, there's, you know, a lot of kind of relearning behaviors and, you know, trying to, you know, decondition a lot of, you know, negative mind states and habits that have developed kind of through the whole addiction that they had. 
got about just a couple minutes left. Uh, you know, but one thing that I was thinking of as we as we talk through a lot of these different topics, when a person comes to you for treatment, and uh, you know, say for instance, they have an addiction that's present. How soon do you get them going towards meditation or, you know, is there a period during which they really have to prepare to then begin doing it, you know? Yeah, so um, that that's a, actually a really good question. You know, if you do, you know, pretty early on, I think that you can introduce, I mean, this would, I mean, you could really almost introduce this in, um, you know, almost like towards the end of rehab if they're not even having withdrawal symptoms, is introduce, you know, a calming concentration kind of meditation, whether that's using, uh, you know, sound meditation or, you know, a very, you know, a very simple body meditation where they just, where they really try to hold in their mind, uh, you know, one object, you know, a body sensation, a sound, you know, even an image. Because those, you know, th- those are simple practices. They tend to be easy you know, they tend to help develop concentration and calm. The, the, the most important thing, though, when you do that is you have to let people know that because they're still, you know, the brain is still not firing all cylinders, that it may right. seem like the meditation practice is somewhat hard at that point. So you don't want to kind of discourage people by giving them something to do that they can't do. So, you know, I might just tell them to try to do it. I might even have them do just, you know, some yoga breathing, but something to really kind of just modulate their nervous system a little bit and sometimes they get the taste of hey this calms me down and if they get you know the flavor that hey this is something helpful it makes it so much easier for them to kind of continue to do it in the future so you know i I introduce something that's very simple something that's very easy something that that you know they can do without you know having to put in a whole lot of time just so they can kind of get a flavor that this is going to help them good stuff great great stuff uh you know, for all you listeners out there, I, I really hope that uh, you've, you've gotten a lot out of just, just hearing how meditation can be, whether you're an addict or not, just a, a powerful, powerful tool to use in your daily life. And uh, I just I just can't thank you enough, Dr. Schro, for taking your time today to speak with us. Um, you know, and well, if, you know, I was serious. Yeah. You know, at some point down the road, who knows if we have more time, I certainly would love to revisit. That does seem like a fascinating topic about hallucinogens being used to treat addictions. I'm yeah, really, really interested in that. So, uh, okay. Before uh, before we leave, uh, if you know someone struggling with an addiction and are searching for answers, tune into Recovery Ready on Fridays for the most up to date information from leading therapists, doctors, and addiction experts. You can listen anytime through the Voice America site or iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and review any of the Recovery Radio podcasts. And before signing off, I'd like to ask, does someone you know and love need inpatient or outpatient treatment for addiction? Maybe you or your loved one needs drug and alcohol rehab. Visit LandmarkRecovery.com to learn more about their innovative substance abuse programming that is saving lives and empowering families. So until next Friday, enjoy your weekend. I'm Zach Crouch with the Recovery Radio, Radio wishing you well. Thank you for tuning in to Recovery Radio. New content for this program is available every Friday with all episodes available on demand here on the Voice America Variety Channel and through our content partners, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play Podcasts. 
Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to create quality content to help save 1 million lives in the next 100 years. You don't need to struggle through addiction alone. Live the life you dreamed on the road to recovery.